I'll be reading just the very end, the very end of the book. It's a wonderful book. I hope many of you have had opportunity to hear Dan's Sunday school study on it. It's a underappreciated book, but a much a book that should be much valued for us devotionally. And what's going on there in the book? If you're using the Pew Bible, this can be found on page 663. And it carries over to page 664. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may all may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgressed against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flock and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom it is its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back. Even at that time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us go once more to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would guard and keep us in this time of worship as we direct our hearts, as we turn our hearts to the time of the preaching of your word. We ask that you would watch over the words of my sinful lips and the meditations of all of our hearts, that these things would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock. You are our strength. You are our redeemer. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. When you think back to Old Testament history, Specifically, the kingdom of Judah, which king stands out by far as the worst? 
the king Manasseh, who reigned immediately after Hezekiah, was the longest standing king in Judah. So in all the history of Judah, the king that stood the longest was the most wicked king. And he reigned in wickedness for 55 years. In Judah, there he, he reigned and he drove Judah into terrible sin, forsaking God, forsaking righteousness, and driving is Judah into idolatry. He was succeeded by his son Ammon, and his son Ammon was so wicked that even his counselors betrayed him, and he was assassinated after two short years, replaced by his son Josiah. It was during the reign of Josiah that Zephaniah is called to come and preach to the people of Judah. So, after 55 years of, under Manasseh, and another two years under Ammon, and then several years even under Josiah, likely 60 years of rebellion to the Lord, what message will he give his people? What is the message that our Lord will give to his people who have rejected him for 60 years? Many believe that the Lord used the words of Zephaniah to bring about the reforms of Josiah. The people had rejected God, but God had not rejected his people. He calls them back to repentance. What is the Lord's message to his people? It is one that declared the glory of God in salvation through judgment. We see the glory of God manifested in judging his people, but in judging his people, he works salvation for his people. And as we see here in the end of Zephaniah, not just for Judah, and not just for Israel, but for all people, that all people would come and call upon the name of God. After two and a half chapters of judgment on the people of Judah, here we hear the comforting words that the Lord is in the midst of his people. He has not rejected them, but he is changing them. He is protecting them, providing for them, and comforting them by his love. This is an incredible mercy in the face of their sin. In the face of our sin, beloved. Our first point for us this morning is that the Lord will purify a people for himself. As good Presbyterians, we know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this purpose is, of course, twofold. We glorify God. That is our purpose, to glorify God, but it is not divorced from enjoyment of him. That we love him. That we enjoy being with him. That our joy in him brings about a desire to glorify him more and more. We find in him eternal joy. And both of these two factors, the glory of God and the enjoyment of God, are addressed here in Zephaniah 3. We see that the Lord is glorified in salvation that is brought about through judgment. And we see as well that we are enabled to enjoy him. First, because we are made holy 
to be like him, sanctified in his image, and second, because we are made happy in his presence. Though we were in distress in our sin, the Lord quiets us so that we can enjoy his presence. We come and sing and we are quieted by his singing over us so that we may be happy. So we observe this Old Testament command, be holy for I am holy, now becomes for us not just a command, but a promise that the Lord will make us holy because he is holy and he longs to dwell with us and for us to dwell with him. And a sinful people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. They must be made holy. They must be purified. He will purify us and make us holy in order that we may dwell with him in perfect joy. We are all unclean. And all our righteousness is as, un, as filthy rags. And we are, as Isaiah said, a people of unclean lips. There in the temple, what does he say as he sees the, the image of the Lord? This revelation there in, in Isaiah 6, he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's exactly what Zephaniah is dealing with here in verse 9. He cleanses their speech. Their speech is impure because they are a people of unclean lips. And just as the Lord cleanses the lips of Isaiah, taking that coal, the seraph takes the coal and presses it against his lips, cleansing his lips, so the Lord will cleanse our lips. Cleansing the lips of Judah. And it's not just a promise for Judah, as I've already said, but it is, as we see there in verse 9, that all may call on the name of the Lord. It is for all men. All men shall respond to God and serve him with one accord. All men shall respond to God in praise and bring him offerings of praise and thanksgiving. It's not just Jews that are called in to worship God. What is the purpose of a mudroom? When you come in after a rainy, muddy day, you, you go into the mudroom, and what do you do? But you take off all of your muddy clothes. And often the mudroom is set up as a, as a border room. It's, it's like a foyer. You come in, you take off your dirty, wet clothes, and you remove them, and there's often also laundry there, washer and dryer, so you can wash the clothes. So that you're not tracking all your mud and dirt into the house, contaminating everything. And that's the point. That we are purified before we come in and enter. In a similar way, the Lord purifies us before we enter into his presence. He cleanses us of all our unrighteousness. So that we may come in and fellowship with him. We may be pure and holy Fit for heaven. And we see this illustrated in a very helpful way in Zechariah 3. Likely you're familiar with the passage when the high priest Joshua is standing there before the judgment. And who is there to accuse him but Satan? Satan says, look at his clothes. His clothes are filthy. He cannot dwell in your presence. He is unrighteous. And what does our Lord say? Our Lord says, remove those filthy garments and put a clean turban on his head. 
and a clean cloak, that he may dwell here with me. I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, he says. This is what the Lord does for us when he purifies us. He removes our sin and and our dirty clothes, all our unrighteousness. And what does he do? But he clothes us in his righteousness, so that we may be pure and righteous and redeemed. We are a people of impure lips. We are sinful and we're corrupt. We've forsaken God in our pride and fixed our affections on worldly things. Just as the people in Zephaniah's day. Their hopes were set on earthly things. Their hopes were set in idols. Their hopes were set in the crops providing for them. We also have impure thoughts. Words and deeds. Our hopes are not set on God. Our hopes are often set on the things of this world. How is the stock market performing? Who's in charge politically? Will my family provide for me in my old age? All these things are not hope for us ultimately, but God is our hope. The Israelites of the Old Testament abandoned God. They sought out idols. They indulged in this syncretistic worship. Worshiping God this way is no fun. I'll still worship Yahweh, but I want to do it the way the the world does it. Can the world inform how I come into God's presence and worship Him? No. That's God's answer. No, the world cannot tell you how to come into my presence and worship. I will tell you how I will be worshipped. And ultimately, he'll say to one of the other prophets, would that someone would close the doors of my temple so that you do not come in and track your filthy, sinful worship into my holy presence. We must be cleansed. But we act in a similar way. When we allow culture to inform our worship, when we put trust in money or family or politics. When we abandon faithful family worship because there's no time or it's too hard. There's got to be more important things for me to get to. We know what should take priority in our hearts, in our minds. But we're not vigilant as we should be. How often do you find yourself thinking about more important things When you're reading your Bible, or when you're praying, or when you're in the worship service. Am I the only one that struggles with this? The distractions of the world are always trying to take hold of my heart, my affections. So that my heart is not quieted before the Lord. And He is not all that I desire. We are a people of impurity who fix our hopes and dreams on the things of the world. But what are the things of this world? It's cold outside, but in a week or two, it's not going to be cold outside. It's just vapor and wind. This world has no effect on us. Who is reigning politically now? Not the same person that's going to be reigning politically in 20 or 30 years. These things do not affect us. God is in control. Our hopes cannot be set in this world. 
And more than that, especially for the children here. As Zephaniah is coming in, he's preaching to them that you cannot depend on your father's and your mother's faith. You must have faith in and of yourself. Faith from God. But it cannot be your parents' faith. You cannot say, I'm worshiping the Lord and we have the temple, the temple of the Lord. It must be your God and you must serve God. You cannot depend on the faith and piety of the preceding generations. It's not enough. Children must call upon Yahweh as their God. But there's comfort here, right? There's comfort. We need cleansing. We know this. This is clear. And we cannot cleanse ourselves. But what does the Lord do? But he promises to cleanse us. This is our comfort. God will cleanse us. He will wash away our iniquity. He will change our speech. This is a theological reversal of Babel. That everyone comes together and calls on the name of the Lord. One God. For all the earth. No longer will we seek the things of this world. But we shall seek heavenly things and find blessing and joy in the Lord who is in our midst. Not only does the Lord change our speech and our affections. So that we seek and call out to him. But he also removes our shame. Not just our sin but our shame beloved. He covers us with his wing and guards us so that no one can come against us and accuse us. To shame us. The Lord humiliates us so that the world cannot. And this is our second point, that the Lord will guard his people and put away their shame. Here in verse 11 we see, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. How is it possible that our shame could be removed? We often think that our shame is removed by exaltation. You remove my shame so that I'm not laughed at by exalting me. Well, what does the text tell us? How is it that our shame is removed? But by utter humiliation. Our shame is removed by humiliation from God. He comes in and he takes the proud and the haughty. He removes them from Judah so that there are only humble people who have seen that they are nothing but utterly dependent on God for their everyday needs. They are not rich. They do not have a 401k. They do not have a retirement plan. They are dependent every day as vine dressers upon the Lord to give them food. That is the humiliation that the Lord brings on Judah. And this is the humiliation that he does for us. Our shame is removed through humiliation. No longer are we proud and haughty. But we are brought low. And it is in our humiliation that we seek refuge in the Lord, it says in verse 12. And no longer are we shepherded by evil shepherds of our generation. Our wicked leaders, it says, are swept away. They're condemned for their oppression. And the Lord shall be our shepherd. He will make us graze and lie down. 
Here the translation, the New King James, is not translated this way, but in verse 13, I think a better way to translate that verse is that the Lord is the one who causes us to graze and lie down. It is not we who cause our flocks to graze and lie down, but even that, the New King James recognizes the Lord is the one who is allowing us to feed our sheep so that next year we have the meat and the fleece of the sheep to depend upon. But other translations say that it is the Lord who causes us to graze and lie down. And this is the imagery that we see from Psalm 23, that the Lord is our shepherd and he feeds us and causes us to lie down in green pastures. We will not fear because he guards us and none shall make us afraid. We shall be known as the fearless ones of the Lord who rise up with strong arms because we are guarded and strengthened by the Lord Most High. He is the great judge of all men and he has taken away the judgments against us. The devil cannot accuse you because the Lord has cleared you. The world cannot humiliate us because the Lord has humiliated us and brought us to himself and exalted us in his son. No one shall come against us because the Lord, God, is our king. He's not like David who stayed at home while his troops went out and fought. But he is in our midst. He is with us in the battle, beloved. We shall fear no evil because he is with us. Although we were once those who mourned because of our shame and oppression, the Lord will gather us to be with him. In celebration forever. And he will put away our reproach in all the earth. Our shame shall be changed into praise. So that all the earth will gather to admire the beauty of the church. The beauty which God has given her. As it says in Revelation 21. The church will come down having the glory of God. Not only will our scoffers gather to admire the church. But even those who have not known the church, will come to know the church and come and praise the church for the beauty that the Lord has given it. Gathered together with all the earth to praise her because her fortunes have been restored. That she is favored by the Lord. Some of you know my daughter, Peggy. If you ask her, she's four, and if you ask her, what does a shepherd do? She'll tell you he cares for his sheep. That's what the shepherd does. He takes care of his sheep. And beloved, that is exactly what we see here in Zephaniah 3. As it's making reference to the shepherding of our Lord. That he feeds his flock and they graze and lie down. Fulfillment of Psalm 23. The Lord is our good shepherd. He knows his sheep and his sheep know him and obey his voice. Despite our wandering and our shame, which is undeniable, the Lord seeks us out when we wander and calls us back. He seeks us out and redeems us. He gathers us to him and protects us from the dangers of the world, of our sin, and protects us from the evil one. He takes on our shame and gives us his glory. So that we can, as verse 13 says, graze and lie down 
and none shall make us afraid. Fearing no evil. He feeds us with the bread of heaven that we may never hunger. This is what is foreshadowed in taking the Lord's Supper. That he provides for us and feeds us. Our cup overflows and goodness and mercy follows us all the days. And we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a great comfort. We are weak and subject to the powers of the world and the devil. But God guards us. Even though the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil would seek to encroach upon us, the Lord guards us. The Lord puts away our shame so that those who once called us shameful ones, rejected by the Lord, will turn and call us blessed ones who are beloved of the Lord. Our hands, which fell at our sides in weakness, will rise up in strength to embrace our God and serve Him wholeheartedly. Once again, here, Zephaniah is referencing Isaiah. When Isaiah declares that the glory of the Lord will be seen and his majesty will be in our presence, there in Isaiah 35, it is then that we shall rejoice and sing our hands being strengthened and our knees made firm. We shall no longer be anxious because the Lord will save us. This is an incredible biblical theology. As Zephaniah traces through history for us the fulfillment of God's prophecy. The promise to Isaiah, which is restated in Zephaniah and finds fulfillment ultimately in the coming of Christ. Because this is what, I, what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.12. 12. It is the Lord Jesus who strengthens our feeble knees and gives us strength in our arms that we may embrace him. And yet there's also a challenge here because the, the church today is shameful. The world scoffs at us. If you ask someone on the streets whether or not the church has a good name, likely they will say, no. The church of Jesus, no. No, it doesn't have a good name. If you ask somebody in the pew, does the church in the world have a good reputation and a good name? Likely they will admit, no. It does not have the name that it should have. It bears the name of Christ, but the reputation it has is one of scandal and shame. And many of us can think of scandals within the church. Church splits and even apostasy within the church. It's not characterized by beauty, but by sin and corruption. So looking at this passage in Zephaniah, where should the church go in her shame? Where do you go, beloved, in your shame? Do you go and find your own mudroom to clean yourself off and strip off all your clothes so that you can then be righteous in the presence of the Lord? No, you cannot remove your iniquity. You cannot remove your shame. But the Lord can remove your shame. The Lord can strengthen you in your weakness. The Lord promises to purify a people to himself, to wipe away our sin and shame and to give us his glory. He will do this by coming into our midst. He will carry us close to his bosom as a gentle shepherd. He will sing and exult over us 
so that we may be quieted by his love. And this is our final point this morning. The Lord is in your midst and will quiet you by his love. So after the Lord has removed our iniquity, he's purified us and removed our shame, he does not abandon us to live apart from him. He doesn't say, you're better now, live by yourself. I fixed you and removed all of your iniquity and shame. Now live righteously. He says, I am in your midst. And I am your king. I will rule over you. I will quiet you with my love and rejoice over you. I will be with you. We're not left to struggle on our own, beloved. The wonderful promise of this passage, which is stated both in verse 15 and 17, so that we cannot miss it, is that the Lord is in our midst. He is with us. We shall sing aloud and shout in joy and exaltation, rejoicing with all our heart because the Lord is our beloved and we are his. when we are overwhelmed by our sin and our shame and the worries of the world, when we are weak and frail and unable to continue or lift our arms, then the Lord comforts us. Then the Lord strengthens our weak knees and raises up our weak arms. The Lord comforts us with his love. He saves us and rejoices over us with gladness. Despite our wailing and our sobbing, In our fears and shame, the Lord quiets us by his love so that we may be silent while he sings and exalts over us with loud singing. This idea may unsettle us as Presbyterians. The Lord is singing over me, but it is biblical. Here in Zephaniah, we see this beautiful picture of the Lord who takes us up. As a father who loves his children and understands that they are weak, that they are but dust, and they need him to care for them. The Lord of heaven and earth loves you and adores you with exultant singing. You are precious to him. Zephaniah makes clear that the judgment of the Lord does not negate the love of the Lord. The judgment of the Lord, in fact, demonstrates the love of the Lord for his people. It is his judgment that brings us back to him in humility, shames us in our iniquity, and reveals our need for someone else to fix us. How many of us can think of times when our children were inconsolable? They were weeping and unable to be comforted. Until you pick them up and you embrace them and you sung to them and you quieted them with your love, assuring them that you are with them and you will strengthen them in their weakness. You will comfort them and that they are precious in your sight. How many of us have had a day where we are overwhelmed at the point of tears and we come home and we are embraced by our beloved? When no one in the world seems to care about us or understand our troubles and our spouse knows and takes us and embraces us 
and loves us and comforts us. This is what our Lord does for us in a far more powerful way than a parent or spouse ever could. This is the promise that you have, beloved. Whether or not you ever knew parents who loved you and embraced you and sung over you, whether or not you know a spouse who loves you and embraces you and comforts you, the Lord does. He takes you in his arms and sings over you, rejoicing in The Lord will embrace you and comfort you by his sweet love. He will sing over you and rejoice over you with gladness. Do not miss the source of comfort from this passage. We're not merely comforted by the removal of sin and shame. Those are wonderful truths, beloved, but that is not the comfort from this passage. That's not the only comfort, the supreme comfort of this passage. The supreme comfort of this passage is that the Lord is in our midst and that he loves us and rejoices over us. Our comfort is found in the love and presence of the Lord who is with us. God is with us. Beloved, how does the reminder that you are precious in God's sight impact your confidence in the face of trials in the world? How does his love for you and singing over you affect your desire to please him? That he's not just an oppressive God or father in heaven, but one who loves you, who calls you by name and sings over you, that you are precious in his sight. And how does it empower you to resist sin and meditate upon his abundant grace? This temptation is is not worth the failure it will bring. This temptation is not as great as my God who sings over me. It's not worth giving into because I have something far greater than anything the world can offer. I have the Lord who is in my midst. Beloved, are you, like me, overwhelmed by your sin? Do you wonder why it still has such a strong hold over you? And are you ashamed of your behavior and convinced and convicted? Are you convinced that you would be rejected if only God knew the full extent of all of your sin? But the comfort here and in all of Scripture is that the Lord does know all things. He knows your sin. He knows every sin that you have committed and that you will ever commit, and yet He died for your sins. He has called you to himself and he holds you and sings over you. Despite your sin and rejection of him, he sings over you and comforts you and quiets you by his love. He does know your sin. And he doesn't just forget it. He condemns it with the full wrath poured out upon Jesus Christ so that you might be righteous and redeemed? How is it that the high priest Joshua can be clothed in righteousness? How is it that we, beloved, can be clothed in righteousness? It's not because of anything that we have done, but it's because of the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. That we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ 
So despite the fact that we resist, we are faced with sin and temptation every day. We are clothed in the righteousness of God. And we have the Lord who is in our midst and he sends his spirit to us to strengthen us. When we are faced with this sin, when we say, Lord, why is this so strong? We are also comforted that he is there with us, that he sends his spirit to help us, that he strengthens our weak knees and raises up our arms to help us to resist sin. There is no sin that is so strong, no temptation that has overtaken us. But God is faithful. And he will allow us to endure it. And there is no sin that you have that Jesus did not already endure punishment for so that you might enjoy his loving presence forever. Don't allow your sin to be the barrier between you and God. Don't say, I am so sinful and corrupt. I am shameful and impure. And so I cannot come before God. The Lord says he will remove these things from us. It might not be the way that we want it. We might not get the exaltation that we want. It might very well be through humiliation. But the promise and blessing of presence in the, of the Lord is far greater than any humiliation that we shall endure to have it. And ultimately, when we consider these things, who is it that has been humiliated? Who is it that has been humiliated so that we might be exalted? Is it not Jesus that did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? Who is it that has gathered to himself the lame and the outcast, those in the streets, to join him at the wedding feast? Is it not Jesus? Who is it that is our king and our shepherd? Is it not Jesus? Who is it that came into our midst and comforted us by his perfect love? Is it not Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate? He fulfills the promises of Zephaniah 3 and assures us that we shall dwell with him forever in perfect embrace. He will wipe away all our tears and give us glory so that we shall have his glory and we shall be beautiful because we shall be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the promise and the fulfillment that we have in Christ who did all this to come that you might be righteous and redeemed, pure and blameless, having the beauty of God. These are awesome truths, beloved. Much to meditate on this week as we go out. Let us close in prayer. Lord God, we are blessed by your word, challenged indeed by your word, that you have called us away from our pride, called us away from our sin and syncretism. And yet we are humbled that you did not forsake us. When we forsook you, you did not forsake us. You did not reject us as an unfaithful bride, but called us to yourself and came into our midst to rejoice over us with singing so that when we were overwhelmed by our sin, 
You quieted us and comforted us, assuring us that our sin is cleansed by your sacrifice. We thank you for this and we ask that we would meditate on these things and it would be strength for us in our times of weakness that we would call out to you. Lord, be in our midst. Strengthen us. For we are tempted daily. We ask that you would help us to meditate on these things. Help us to be conformed into your image and be blessed in the knowledge and assurance that you are in our midst. And in all these things we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us sing now together hymn 324.